It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Berta Gaydal slowly ascended the steps to the Paris courthouse on July 23, 1914. The 45-year-old woman had waited for this day for years. Ever since her ex-husband, Joseph Caillou, had cheated on her and then married his mistress, Henriette, she had been trying to get back at him. Despite her inner excitement, she maintained a stoic expression as she walked inside the courthouse and found her seat. It wasn't long before Joseph turned to face her. The two exchanged glares that were so cold and hateful, those around them instinctively tensed up. Eventually, Berta allowed herself to relax and looked away from her ex-husband. She tapped her purse firmly. Inside, she had the final piece of her revenge. She wouldn't be the one crying. No, not this time. And she wouldn't stop until Joseph was reduced to a quivering mess. She would do whatever it took to bring him down. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we charted French politician Joseph Caillou's rise to power during the early 20th century. While climbing the political ranks, he divorced his first wife and married his mistress, Henriette. In response to this impropriety and other political scandals, 55-year-old newspaper editor Gaston Calmet waged a vicious smear campaign against Joseph in 1914. Gaston's newspaper Le Figaro 
threatened to publish private love letters between Joseph and Henriette, proving they had an affair together before marrying, therefore destroying Joseph's political reputation. His wife, Henriette, was enraged by the coverage. She went as far as to purchase a weapon to use against Gaston to defend her honor. This week, we'll delve into the dramatic events following Henriette's purchase and one of the most scandalous trials in French history. On the evening of March 16, 1914, 39-year-old Henriette Caillou stepped out of her car outside the offices of Gaston Calmet's Parisian newspaper, Le Figaro. She was dressed in a formal gown, meant for fancy afternoon tea. In fact, the socialite had made plans to attend afternoon tea with a friend that day, but at the last moment, she had skipped the appointment and instead directed her driver to Le Figaro. Henriette grabbed her bag and her heavy fur coat and muff from the back seat of the car. She pulled the coat on over her gown. Then she reached inside her bag and pulled out the small Browning automatic pistol she had just purchased. The metal felt cool in her hand. She felt a surge of adrenaline as she gripped the handle tightly. For just a moment, doubt flashed in Henriette's mind as she tucked the pistol into the sleeve of her coat. Should she really be debasing herself in public like this? She slipped her fur muff over her hand so that the pistol was completely covered. She reassured herself, by doing this, she was preventing disgrace. That nasty editor, Gaston Calmet, could not be allowed to continue attacking her and her husband's character. That Gaston had no idea who he was dealing with. She turned her nose up and marched into the building, Henriette approached the secretary and demanded to see Monsieur Calmet immediately. The secretary couldn't believe her eyes. Madame Caillou, one of the wealthiest and most influential women in the country, was standing right in front of her. She hurriedly stood up and scurried to Gaston's office. Henriette sneered. It looked like some people in this office knew how to listen to their betters after all. But then, that's how it always seemed. Gossips and lowlifes loved to chatter when she wasn't around. They pretended to know all about her private life and spent their time clicking their tongues behind her back. Then, as soon as she turned around, they all became smiling sycophants. For Henriette, spending even moments in the dingy editorial office made her sick. She'd spent her entire life among the upper echelons, refined people whose families boasted generations of wealth and power. Everyone was better off when class drivers like Gaston were taught their place. And she knew just what kind of lesson he deserved. Henriette's attitude toward the journalists and people she saw as inferior was in some ways a product of her bourgeoisie birth. Before I continue with Henriette's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. People who are raised in a life of privilege and wealth, like Henriette, sometimes develop a clouded sense of right and wrong. 
Some psychologists call this way of thinking affluenza. The term is controversial, but research suggests the idea is not as ridiculous as it may sound. A study published in Psychological Science discovered that wealthy people are worse at reading facial expressions than people who are poor, suggesting wealthy people have reduced levels of empathy. Researchers Paul Piff and Dasher Keltner at UC Berkeley showed that drivers of more expensive cars were less likely to give pedestrians the right-of-way and were also more prone to cutting off other cars in traffic. The term is controversial, but research suggests the idea is not as ridiculous as it may sound. A study published in Psychological Science discovered that wealthy people are worse at reading facial expressions than people who are poor, suggesting wealthy people have reduced levels of empathy. Researchers Paul Piff and Dasher Keltner at UC Berkeley showed that drivers of more expensive cars were less likely to give pedestrians the right-of-way and were also more prone to cutting off other cars in traffic. Henriette saw Gaston as someone lesser than her, someone who didn't deserve what she had, someone who, perhaps, didn't even deserve to live. That day, in the offices of Le Figaro, Henriette adjusted her fur muff. She squeezed the handle of the pistol concealed inside. It wouldn't be long now. Finally, the secretary returned and told Henriette that Gaston would see her momentarily. Why didn't she sit down to wait? But Henriette refused. She didn't want to ruin her coat by sitting in such filthy chairs. The secretary nervously kept her head down and tried to look busy. She could feel the heat of Henriette's stare and was grateful when Gaston finally emerged from his office. Gaston, at 55 years old, was only 15 years older than Henriette, but he somehow appeared especially aged next to her. Henriette was impeccably dressed and made up, while the portly Gaston was dressed in a basic dark business suit. Gaston gracefully led Henriette into his office and shut the door. Once again, Henriette refused to sit, and so Gaston remained standing in front of his desk. After a moment of silence, Henriette asked Gaston if he knew why she had come. He had no idea. He was genuinely surprised by the visit. Of course, he could guess it had something to do with the issue Le Figaro had printed three days prior. He had broken the journalistic decorum of the time by publishing a private letter written by Henriette's husband, Joseph. The content of the letter didn't make it explicitly clear Henriette and Joseph were having an affair, but Henriette knew Gaston had other more incriminating love letters. She couldn't allow him to publish anything else that could threaten her reputation. Gaston, for his part, was usually a man of class, and the breach of propriety had not been an easy decision. But he strongly believed Joseph Caillou was unfit to govern the French people. It was his duty as a journalist to make the public aware when a politician was morally compromised. Unfortunately, Gaston never got the chance to explain himself. Before he could say any more, Henriette whipped off her fur muff. She gripped the pistol concealed in her sleeve 
and pointed it at Gaston. Without even giving him a chance to scream, Henriette squeezed the trigger. Four of the six bullets hit Gaston in the abdomen and he fell to the floor hard, gushing blood. Within seconds, employees rushed inside the office. They surrounded Henriette and took away her weapon. Henriette maintained an impassive, stately expression as the employees flooded in. As they grabbed her wrist, she shook them off and commanded them to let go, shouting, Do not touch me. I am a lady. No one could really process what had just happened. One of the most famous women in the country with considerable political influence had just shot a man in broad daylight. The police and a doctor were called. Gaston was loaded onto a stretcher, but the doctor did not have much hope for his survival. There was little that could be done for a man who was shot so many times in the gut. The police felt equally at a loss. Henriette was no ordinary criminal and refused to be treated like one. For example, she would not enter the police vehicle. She had her own car outside and insisted that her driver take her to the station instead. French authorities were befuddled. The case was unprecedented. How did common politeness direct them to behave in this situation when someone of such high standing committed such a low deed? Reluctantly, they agreed to let Henriette ride in her own car, followed by a police escort. Henriette's driver dutifully took her to the police station where she was arraigned for murder. But afterwards, she was once again treated as a special case and allowed to return home to wait for her trial. Her husband, Joseph Caillou, was informed of his wife's crime not long after she was taken to the police station. Afterward, he found a note Henriette had left him at home. It read, It is I who will perform justice. It is I who will do the deed. It is difficult to know for sure 51-year-old Joseph's reaction to his wife's crime. In public, he remained supportive of her, claiming that she had committed a crime of passion. He insisted in lockstep with the later claims of Henriette's legal team that she had fallen victim to her womanly emotions and couldn't be held responsible for her actions. In private, his relationship with Henriette may have been more strained. He had threatened to kill Gaston himself in recent days as a matter of honor, so he must have sympathized with Henriette's actions. But on the other hand, his strongest motivations were directed towards preserving his political career. He'd held himself back from challenging Gaston to a duel because it undoubtedly would have affected his chance at re-election, even more than Le Figaro's libelous articles. And now, the scandal caused by Henriette's homicidal rampage meant Joseph had to immediately resign from his post as Minister of Finance. To a man who valued his public position above all else, it was undoubtedly a bitter blow. Perhaps Joseph could have accepted losing his position if it saved him and Henriette from the embarrassment of having their private lives become public. 
But now, in the wake of the shooting, their lives were an open book, picked apart by the media. Almost every publication, great and small, followed the Caillou case. Henriette's trial was a circus and all of France clamored for tickets. All Henriette and Joseph could do was to keep their heads down and prepare for the proceedings. They definitely had their work cut out for them. Henriette couldn't deny committing the shooting. There were at least a dozen witnesses to the crime. Nonetheless, she proclaimed her innocence. She maintained that the passion and anger incited by Le Figaro's deleterious articles had momentarily clouded her judgment. She had been so affected by Gaston's articles, she'd gone temporarily mad and couldn't be held responsible for her own actions. It seemed like a tall order, but it was not unprecedented in France at the time. Under normal circumstances, if Henriette was found guilty, she could be sentenced to life in prison or even to death. But French jurors could also deliver a verdict of guilty with extenuating circumstances. This would result in a significantly milder sentence, though would still require a minimum of five years' hard labor. But Henriette was never one to undersell herself. She was convinced that she could show a panel of jurors that her circumstances were so unbearable that she wasn't guilty at all, not even with extenuating circumstances. She swung for the fences and pled not guilty. Her husband pledged to support her every step of the way. He could hardly deny a woman who had killed for him. But he also knew that the rehabilitation of Henriette's reputation was the only way he could ever hope to regain a publicly elected position. Both the Cayus entered the courthouse on July 20th, 1914, ready for a fight. World War I was only eight days away, but as far as the citizens of France were concerned, this was the battle of the century. When we return, the explosive and unprecedented trial of Madame Henriette Caillou. Now, back to the story. On July 20th, 1914, 40-year-old Henriette Caillou arrived at the Paris courthouse to stand trial for the murder of newspaper editor Gaston Calmet. Henriette's husband, Joseph, the 51-year-old former prime minister and minister of finance, supported her from the gallery. Both knew they had a long journey ahead of them. Despite the fact that Henriette had shot Gaston four times and was caught with a literal smoking gun, they were optimistic that she could be acquitted. The Cayuse knew that the first day of the trial would be the most important and the best opportunity to shape public opinion. The courtroom was thronged with reporters and spectators, eager for a show. After all, this was the first French trial to ever feature the president of France on the witness list. Others expected to participate were famous intellectuals who knew the Cayus, politicians of all stripes, and media magnates. Henriette was well prepared for the press and confident she could turn the attention to her favor. Unlike in modern trials, 
there were no restrictions on jurors discussing the proceedings with family or friends. They were allowed to read news coverage of the events and debate the details of the trial with members of the public. Considering the fact that nearly every camera in France was trained on the Cayuse, they had a huge opportunity to sway the jurors by swaying public opinion first. Jurors can be very influenced by outside opinions and a general desire to reach a consensus in their group. According to law professor Daniel W. Schumann, jurors exert pressure on each other to comply with the group opinion. Some jurors even pressure those with minority opinions to change their minds and conform to the rest of the group. Having only a slight majority of jurors on one side early in the process can greatly affect the verdict of a trial down the line. With that in mind, Henriette made it her primary mission to control the narrative. She spent the entire afternoon on the first day of the trial giving her deposition. According to French trial rules at the time, there were few limits on how long defendants and witnesses could speak. They also had the right to respond whenever another witness mentioned their name. Meanwhile, the judge was also permitted to question defendants and witnesses for as long as he wanted and was allowed to freely make comments to anyone in the courtroom. This meant that the judge could show heavy favor to one side or another, adding to the potential drama. And Henriette was perfectly suited for all of it. As she took the stand, the judge gave her clearance to tell the audience anything that she deemed useful. Henriette cleared her throat and recounted how she had been raised as a bourgeoisie. She was married, divorced, and then married again to Joseph Caillou. She told the jury she lived an idyllic life with Joseph for a while until it was tainted by his political enemies. Full of emotion, she told her life story. Henriette seethed on the stand. She was constantly on the verge of tears during her testimony. She could barely look out at the faces of the jury, composed of people of lower station than herself. They could never understand what it was like to value your reputation so highly. She would have to make them understand this whole affair was bigger than her husband or Gaston. It was about her. She was a consummate victim of slander and libel. Because Joseph's political enemies wanted him out of parliament, they stooped to personal attacks on her. Le Figaro published story after story, hundreds of them, constantly attacking her and her family in every way possible. Couldn't they understand? The deluge of unjust criticism was too much to bear. It was improper. Her upper-class friends treated her like spoiled goods. She stayed up at night, tossing and turning, worrying about what kind of rumors would be spread about her family the next day. If she didn't have her well-connected friends or the ability to attend a modest soiree, what did she have? What was her life supposed to be? Henriette forced herself to be composed for the court. She wanted everyone to know that she maintained her grace even in the face of so much imprudent criticism. She gazed out at the journalists before her, salivating like jackals over their notepads and sketchbooks. 
They weren't interested in the truth. They were all like Gaston, only out to sell papers. That's all this whole thing was, a farce, a money-making enterprise at the expense of the elite. Well, Henriette knew money. The ring on her little finger was worth more than what half these reporters could scrounge together in a year. She pushed them out of her mind and continued her testimony. The greatest injustice of it all was that her hands had been tied by the whole thing. She was a lady and yet had no recourse to protect her reputation. Weren't women expected to be responsible for their families and their household? But she was not allowed to defend her honor the way a man could in a formal duel. Her only choice was brute violence. <laughs> Henriette went on and on about the distress the newspaper campaign had caused her this last year. She spoke almost uninterrupted for hours. She was a powerful orator and used to having people listen to her. Few of the professional politicians in the courtroom could have done a better job of making use of their time. To support her argument, Henriette played up the French ideal of a woman ruled by her passions. She tried to appear as feminine as possible and evoked romantic images of passionate heroines, so overcome with emotion that they could not be reasoned with. To supplement her arguments, she used the lexicon of the burgeoning fields of psychology and criminology. She claimed that she was driven by her unconscious to harm Gaston. Many criminologists at the time would have agreed with her. The predominant theories of the day attributed criminal tendencies to factors outside the criminal's control. Female criminals especially were seen as defenseless against their unconscious desires. According to these theories, violent emotions could temporarily cause a person to see red and fall victim to their passions. Everyone was seen as susceptible to this type of lapse in judgment, though some people were considered more at risk based on their gender, genetic makeup, and environment. Because of this way of thinking, it made prosecuting people who had supposedly fallen victim to their passions difficult. If an irresistible, ferocious urge could befall anyone at any time, was it fair to imprison those who were unlucky enough to succumb to their unconscious? This was the general thread of Henriette's defense. In her words, it was like having two separate beings inside myself, like two separate wills, on the one hand, I wanted to go to an afternoon tea. On the other hand, I felt a greater force take hold of me. Her testimony comprised most of the first day of trial. By the morning, there were dozens of articles in newspapers all over the world about the Caillou affair, as it was now known. Whether or not an article sympathized with Henriette, depended primarily on whether the newspaper was liberal or conservative. Outlets that leaned leftward like Joseph Caillou tended to support Henriette's defense. Pieces played up her emotional state and described her as passionate and near tears on the stand. Articles in more conservative papers, especially Le Figaro, described her in the opposite terms. They called her bland, 
cold and calculating. These pieces took pains to imply or outright accuse Henriette of committing the murder on her husband's orders. They tried to reframe the crime as a deliberate assassination to protect Joseph's career. The fact that he immediately stepped down from his ministry position following the murder appeared to be irrelevant. Yet, as important as Henriette's testimony was, reporters were most anticipating the second day of trial, when Joseph Caillou would take the stand. His words would carry much weight in deciding whether the murder was politically or emotionally motivated. And Joseph was well prepared. He intended to take his opportunity in front of the courtroom to address the French public at large. He may have lost his job as a politician, but he hadn't lost his ambition. He hadn't given up hope that his reputation could be restored. Joseph's first deposition lasted three hours. Over the course of the testimony, he went through the story of his entire career. He, like his wife, was given free reign to speak about whatever he deemed relevant. Unsurprisingly, Joseph considered almost everything about himself relevant. With his characteristic aristocratic confidence and self-involvement, Joseph held the courtroom hostage. He freely spoke to the judge and the prosecutors as if he held more political power in the courtroom than they did. The liberties Joseph took during his testimony were so great that when he was finished speaking on the second day of trial, he even dismissed the courtroom on his own. With a flippant hand wave, he only asked Judge Onbanel to make the dismissal official, which he dutifully did. But despite Herculean efforts to win the public over and give the jury his side of the story, Joseph couldn't make inroads with everybody. Conservative publications still portrayed the Cayus as political conspirators. To this end, Le Figaro reminded the public of the Moroccan crisis of 1912 that had forced Joseph to step down as prime minister two years before. As we detailed last week, during negotiations with Germany over territory in colonized Africa, Joseph had illegally used friends outside the government to conduct diplomatic meetings. At one of the meetings, he accidentally revealed that French intelligence had decoded encrypted German telegrams. This slip-up caused Germany to change their code. But Le Figaro went further than just dredging up a past embarrassment. After Joseph's first deposition, the paper alluded to the fact that it had copies of telegrams proving that Joseph caused Germany to change its encryption. Though the gaffe had been accidental, from the outside, it would be easy to view the incident as Joseph deliberately linking national secrets. Trying to control the damage, Joseph reached out to the French president, Raymond Poincaré, to intervene on his behalf. It turned out that before Joseph stepped down as Minister of Finance, he stole some telegrams of his own from the Ministry of the Interior. These cables exposed the fact that Poincaré received money directly from the Vatican. They could imply that Poincaré was unduly influenced by countries outside of France. Joseph bullied Poincaré into using his influence to prevent these compromising documents from being leaked in the papers. After Joseph's threats, 
the president called a private meeting of his cabinet, which deliberated all night and into the next morning. The next morning, the president produced a statement on behalf of the government regarding Le Figaro's telegrams. It read, The telegrams are nothing more than faked copies of documents that do not exist. Le Figaro bowed to the government pressure and opted not to release any telegrams. But ultimately, Joseph was still embarrassed in the eyes of France. The government's official statement that the documents were phony was an obvious lie. Plenty of other journalists and people working in the government knew the telegrams were authentic. Nevertheless, the trial proceeded even as the core issue at hand became confused among political rivalries and concerns for bourgeoisie reputations. As it turned out, the drama had only just started. Berta Gaydal, Joseph's burned first wife and former mistress, waited patiently for her opportunity for revenge against the man that rejected her. When we return, we'll talk about the shocking resolution to the trial of Henriette Caillou and the aftermath of her crime of passion. Now, the conclusion of our story. On July 20, 1914, 40-year-old Henriette Caillou went on trial for the murder of newspaper editor Gaston Calmet. The prosecution sought to portray Henriette as cool and calculating, while Henriette claimed that she had been in mental turmoil and was thus not responsible for her actions. But as dramatic as the first days of the trial were, the most exciting testimony was yet to come. Berta Gaydal, who had been married to Joseph Caillou from 1906 to 1910, was set to testify on July 23rd. As we discussed last week, Joseph and Henriette carried on an affair while he was still married to Berta. It was a love letter that Joseph wrote to Henriette, which Le Figaro had published, igniting the entire scandal and the paper had threatened to publish even more. Though she denied it in her testimony, no one wondered where Le Figaro had gotten access to the photographic copies of the letters. Berta had a score to settle. She brought more copies of the love letters to the courthouse. She was ready to read them aloud for all to hear. The public letter reading was the greatest irony of Henriette Caillou's trial. She had killed Gaston Calmet because she was afraid of the harm the love letters would do to her status. Yet, she had killed Gaston Calmet because she was afraid of the harm the love letters would do to her status. Yet, in order to prove that the letters really were so potentially damaging that they were worth killing over, the jury had to hear them and judge for themselves. How else could they be expected to believe Henriette's humiliation really drove her to commit a crime of passion? Berta thought about all this with glee. Her attitude towards Joseph and Henriette was so cold when they met on the fourth day of the trial, their hostility was obvious even to bystanders. For Henriette, the feelings were certainly mutual. 
As Henriette watched Berta enter the courtroom, her eyes narrowed. She had always known that any lingering unhappiness between herself and Joseph could be traced back to Berta. It had been Berta who held Joseph from her in the first place. It had taken her forever to pry that miserable woman's hands off of his heart. Even though Berta knew Joseph had been cheating on her, she still clung to his side like a barnacle. Berta passed by Henriette without glancing at her and walked evenly to the stand. Henriette knew that Berta must be loving this. She took joy in watching the Cayuse publicly embarrassed. It was her fault that all of this had happened in the first place. If she hadn't stolen Joseph's love letters, Henriette never would have had to do what she did. She looked back towards Joseph. His eyes were fixed on Berta. Henriette had no doubt he was feeling exactly as she was. If only she could protect him now, as she had done with Gaston. Instead, she smoothed her dress and sat up straight. All she could do was keep quiet. She had beaten Berta before, and she could do it again. Berta's deposition went more quickly than Henriette's and Joseph's, though she had indeed been manipulated by Joseph and was a victim to his womanizing, she did a poor job of convincing the court. She quibbled with the judge about whether she could use notes to help her remember what she wanted to say. She snapped when an attorney asked her to speak more loudly. All in all, she was not the orator that Henriette and Joseph were, but she still had a flair for the dramatic. Toward the end of her testimony, there was a short dispute about whether Berta should be allowed to read all of the unpublished incriminating letters that Joseph had written to Henriette. Berta did not want to appear vindictive, and so she handed the letters to the defense attorney, claiming that he could decide what to do with them. The defense attorney obviously did not want the letters to be read out loud for the sake of his client, but neither did he want to appear to be excluding valuable evidence from the court. A short and awkward legal exchange occurred between the defense, prosecution, and Berta, wherein all three claimed that the others were responsible for deciding whether the letters should be read. Ultimately, the argument grew so loud that the judge called for a recess. The trial ended up being suspended for the day. After the recess was called, the spectators were in a tizzy. Even the judge and his assistant magistrates were caught up in the drama. One of the assistants, Louis Daggery, muttered that Judge Unbanel had dishonored the courtroom. Daggery felt that by suspending the session, the judge had shown unfair favor to Henriette's side. He felt it was relevant to the trial that the letters be read as soon as possible. After Daggery's comment, the judge and his assistant adjourned in private, and Daggery apologized to the judge. He apparently thought twice about it afterward, however. The next day in Le Figaro, a story ran about Daggery's insult to the judge. He was quoted as standing behind his comment about Onbanel. The following day, June 24th, Judge Onbanel opened the session by saying, more than anyone else in this room, I take care to defend my own honor, 
despite what anyone may have said. Over the course of the day, Own Bunnell challenged Daggery, one of his assistant magistrates, to a duel to defend his honor. Daggery hastily accepted. The escalation of a seemingly innocuous comment into a matter that both parties were willing to die over suggests that both the judge and his assistant had an absolutist mentality. According to psychologist Dr. Jeremy Sherman, absolutism is absolute confidence in one's beliefs, beliefs held so firmly that nothing could change one's mind. The fact that the dispute had gone public and articles had been published about it likely encouraged both men to stick to their guns. Dr. Sherman writes that, when the going gets tough, we tend to dig in our heels, getting stubborn. There are plenty of explanations for our tendency towards absolutism when stressed. It's likely that the stress of having their grievances aired in public caused the judge and Daggery to feel that their entire lives were at stake in the simple argument. In fact, it was only the outbreak of World War I a few days later, on July 28, 1914, that prevented the duel between Own Bunnell and Daggery from occurring. But in the midst of this petty squabbling, the murder trial of Henriette Caillou continued on. On the sixth day of the trial, Joseph's illicit letters were finally read out loud to the court. When the decision was announced, the entire court grew silent. This was the most salacious part of the trial. This is what they had all been waiting for. This was how Berta took her revenge on Joseph and Henriette. The letters made it exceedingly clear that Joseph was cheating on his wife. One letter ended with the words, a thousand million kisses all over your adored little body. After all the letters had been read, the central question remained, were the contents explosive enough to justify Henriette's violence? Over the next two days of the trial, each side attempted to bolster their arguments by bringing in psychologists and expert witnesses to argue about whether Henriette could have been overcome by emotion. Finally, on the eighth day of the trial, July 28, 1914, the lawyers made their closing arguments. It only took the jury half an hour to return a verdict. Henriette Caillou was found not guilty. The courtroom devolved into a circus. Spectators, reporters, and the parties involved all began yelling, some in celebration, some in anger. Journalists had a field day. The fascination with the Caillou affair might have continued even longer if Archduke Franz Ferdinand hadn't been killed in Sarajevo that same day. The Great War had begun. But the story of the Caillous didn't end there. Toward the end of World War I, Caillou re-entered politics, but was never far from controversy. In 1918, he was charged with treason for conspiring to grant heavy concessions to Germany in exchange for quick peace. He served three years in prison for his crimes, but even that couldn't stop Joseph from chasing public office. 
His reputation recovered yet again and he served in the French government during the late 1920s. As for Henriette, she stuck by Joseph's side throughout all the controversies, but as time went on, their marriage suffered. She later claimed that she realized soon after her trial that she did not really love Joseph at all. The entire affair, which had cost a man's life, was apparently a mistake. Henriette died in 1943 at the age of 68. Joseph died a year later at the age of 81. Through a single act, the legacy of both husband and wife became indelibly etched into the national history of France. Though it was judged to be a crime of passion, there was ironically little passion between Henriette and her husband after the matter came to a close. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler as a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Terrell Wells. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>